As we go to open God's word, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. And we open our mouths and pant because we long for your commandments. So would you turn to us and be gracious to us as is your way with those who love your name. And make your face shine upon your servants and teach us your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in God's word to John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. John chapter 20, you'll find that on page 1154 of many of our pew Bibles. Um, The gospel of John is between the book of Luke and the book of Acts in the New Testament. And so we want to think together about John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23, in connection with Lord's Day 31 on the keys of the kingdom. And so we're going to look at verses 19 through 23 together. So John chapter 20, beginning our reading at verse 19, and let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Uh, Well, we've come to that part of the catechism, which is the end of the second section, the grace section. Uh, We know that we can roughly divide the catechism in the same outline of the rough outline of the book of Romans, guilt, grace, and gratitude. Uh, The second section of the catechism, the grace section, really ends with this Lord's Day. This is the last that that comprehends the grace of God and teaches us about that. And this Lord's Day is on the keys of the kingdom, uh, preaching and discipline and how they function in the life of God's people. Uh, We call them the keys of the kingdom because that's how Jesus describes them in Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 and 19. Uh, When Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Um, These are the keys of the kingdom. We see the same kind of reference to that authority in our passage this evening. And I thought it would be good for us to think of the keys of the kingdom from the passage in John, uh, because it's clear that in John that it doesn't just come to Peter. Uh, That's a mistake that people have made looking at Matthew 16 to think that somehow Peter alone, as the head of the church, has been given the keys of the kingdom. Uh, Today, if you were to travel to Rome, you could see and go to Vatican City, you would see the the emblem of the Pope, which is a crown over two keys. And the keys essentially represent the keys of the kingdom. Um, And it's their belief that in unbroken succession, the keys were given to Peter and they've been given to every Pope since then. 
Uh, We know that historically this claim is absolutely indefensible as a piece of history. Uh, We know that historically and biblically this claim is absolutely inaccurate. Jesus is not giving the keys to Peter as the first pope. He's giving the keys to the church. That's made clear in John's gospel um, when the authority is passed on to his disciples to act in his name and to give forgiveness and withhold forgiveness as he has taught them. Um, And we see this clearly taught in John's gospel. This passage wonderfully recounts that Easter evening uh, when Jesus appeared to his disciples in this upper room and commissioned them uh, to go forward to do the work uh, that they, he, they have been called to do. This is after Christ has accomplished salvation, has risen from the dead, and is now commissioning his apostles to go into the world and exercise his authority there. Um, and so we want to think about this commission they received, and we want to think about it in the context it comes to them. I think the context is also important for us to understand this authority that they are given. Uh, so what do we see in this passage? We see first the problem of fear. Uh, Secondly, the peace of Christ. And finally, his provision for the church. You can all relax that we've come back to three points this evening. Uh, Things are right again. So we have uh, the problem of fear, the peace of Christ, and the provision for the church. I think it's important to understand this commission as it comes in the context of the fear that the disciples are experiencing. Before we think about Christ's word of peace to them and the provision he makes for the church and the world, I think it's worth thinking about the problem of fear that they are experiencing. And here the details are important. I mean, the details of the Bible are always important. But as John tells this story, we should, I think, particularly take note of these things. Uh, First of all, John tells us specifically what day it is. Um, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week. Um, I was just recently in Israel, and we were driving on a Sunday, and somebody said, boy, it's a lot of traffic for a Sunday morning. And our Jewish guide said, well, yeah, that's because this is the first day of our work week. This isn't the weekend for us. The weekend for us ends on Saturday. Sunday's the first day of the week. Um, It's the day that we, and maybe we sometimes think that way, because Sunday feels for us like the last day of the weekend, sometimes more than the first day of the week. So why is it important? Is this just you know, a factual detail that it's the first day of the week? Um, I think in the context of what the disciples are experiencing, the first day of the week sort of sets off the rest of the time that's ahead of them. And for them, this would have been the first week without Jesus. Right? Think about it from their perspective. They've been with Jesus. They've been with him ministering. They know that he has died And now they're thinking about going forward in this week sort of without him. And maybe thinking about what life in this world is going to be like without Jesus. Um, How they are going to go forward in the world. Uh, What this new time is going to be like for these who have been with Jesus, who've loved Jesus, who've walked with him. Um, To think about now what is life going to be like. Um, It's not just the beginning of the first day of the week, but they're living this this new week in a new kind of fear. Think about the circumstances that that John describes. They're they're here and the door is locked for fear of the Jews. This is not just a week without Jesus. This is a week of uncertainty. 
what will become of us? Um, just think about it. This is, these are the people who've served the one who did all of these miraculous works, who healed the sick, who drove out demons, who could command the storm, who could raise the dead. And if he could be put to death at the hands of Jewish leaders, what about them? And what about them without him? Um, the circumstances are important. There are real things that they are afraid of, a real uncertainty that they are facing. And it would be easy for us, I think, just to move right on from this and go right into the good news, which is the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's a wonderful thing, I think, for us to recognize uh, that God's people face real fears in this life. There's nothing imaginary about what the disciples are facing. Um, it's not like when I was a little kid and it, you know, I'd be in the bed at night and the lights would be off and you'd see a shape in your closet and think that it was some monster and you would need some help and you know, mom or dad would come in and turn on the lights and you'd see it was just your coat hanging in the closet in a weird way. There was nothing to be afraid of there. That's not the kind of fear the disciples are facing here. These are real things to be afraid of. And God's people face real fears in this world. Um, as we navigate life in this world, there are really things to be afraid of. Um, and maybe you can think about that this evening, what kinds of things you're afraid of. We're not going to do audience participation tonight. You don't need to tell me. Um, but there are all kinds of things that we are afraid of. We have an election on Tuesday. Uh, there are a lot of people that are stoking fears. Um, we can be afraid of the world. We can be afraid of the devil. We can be afraid of our own flesh. There are real fears that God's people face. And one of the things that can make them so difficult is that we are really powerless against many of the things that we fear. Um, we, you know, the disciples are afraid that someone's going to come and arrest them and maybe put them to death, and so they lock the door. Um, that's the great defense against what could happen. Well, we lock the door. Now the authorities won't be able to come in. You know, a locked door only offers you so much protection. It's really not going to stop the authorities if they really want to come in. Um, it, it's a small protection. And that's, I think, what we sometimes struggle with, the things that we fear. We understand how powerless we really are against them. Uh, we can worry, we can fret, we can take precautions, but in the end, we're relatively powerless, especially against the world and the flesh and the devil. Um, what, what can we do against those enemies? I think this is, this is some way of explaining why some Christian culture warriors in our day are attracting such a following, because people are really afraid of real things. And there are people out there that pretend that they've got the solutions to the things that people are afraid of. They know how to combat it. And all you have to do is follow them, and they'll lead the way and show you how to combat these things. They're powerless against the things we fear, too. Um, we fear these things that are real, and we feel that we are really powerless. The catechism reminds us, you know, we can't stand for a moment against the world, the flesh, and the devil. These things are real, and we are really powerless. The disciples are, are struggling with that. They face real fears, and they recognize 
their powerlessness in the face of it. At this point, you might be saying, well, thank you, Pastor, for this depressing message. I'm really glad we turned out on Sunday night to hear that there are real things to be afraid of and there's nothing we can do about it. Um, But what I want to be clear, it's into this problem of fear that the peace of Christ comes. Because to say we can't do anything about the things we fear is not the same thing as saying no one can do anything about the things that we fear. We're saying we are powerless, but there is a power. We're powerless against the world, the flesh, and the devil, but there is one who is not. There is one who has power in the face of those things, and he is the one who then appears to the disciples, who appears before them. Jesus came and stood among them, John tells us, and said to them, Peace be with you. Jesus is the solution to the things that we fear. And here too, I think John is directing our attention to the details. Um, The first detail we see is the powerful presence of Christ. The locked door is no obstacle to him. He simply appears. Now sometimes we get all into this with talking about now, when we're, when we're raised in our resurrection bodies, does that mean we'll be able to walk through locked doors? Is that the, you know, the primary thing we should be trying to learn from this passage? And we can kind of go down these rabbit trails of things like that. The point is not that. What is John's point here in saying? Here comes one who can do what no one else can do. No one else can just appear inside of a locked room and bypass the door. There's no one else who could do what Jesus did. This is a sign of his powerful presence. He is not limited by the things of this world that so limit us. He is not powerless in the face of the world the way we are powerless in the face of things. His will can be done. And it's not just the fact that he appears through a locked door that, that really testifies to his power. It's that he appears among them alive after he was dead. Right, Not just dead, but crucified, dead, and buried. And now here he is, standing among them. That's really what testifies to the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he's not just facing, you know, we th- we're afraid of things that are out there, but we don't necessarily face them all. He's faced all the things we're afraid of. He faced the world, and he faced his flesh, and he faced the devil, and he triumphed over it all. He remained faithful in the face of temptation. He triumphed over his enemies. He stands before them triumphant, powerful over everything that we fear. And his powerful presence comes to those who are afraid, and he speaks a wonderful word. A wonderful word of peace. Peace be with you. In the one sense, that is the ordinary thing you would say if you walked in a door. Probably all the disciples, as they came in to this room in the first place, walked in and said, peace be with you. And the other one said, peace be with you. This is just the way they would have greeted one another. 
Um, and that's something of, of the amazing thing about Jesus, even in his resurrected glory. Some of these things are so normal. Good evening. In one sense, it's a very ordinary word. In another sense, coming from Jesus in the context it comes from him and to them, it's an extraordinary word. In the midst of fear, in the midst of concern, in the midst of uncertainty, for Jesus to come and to say, peace. Peace be with you. Um, This is the peace that he had promised them in John 14 before his death. What did he said to them about his peace there? In John 14, 27, he said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. When I say peace to you, it's not like when the other disciples say peace to you. When I give you my peace, I don't give it the way the world gives it. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. There's power in this word of peace. He has the power to make peace. And we know that he has the power to make peace because his wounds testify to that power. It's an interesting way that that John goes on to describe this encounter in verse 20. We're not going to take every verse so slowly. Don't despair. Um, But what does he say in verse 20? When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Um, These wounds testify that this is really the Jesus they knew. This is really the Jesus who died on the cross. They show his identity, but they're also the marks of his triumph. They show that here is the one who was crucified, living, speaking to them who's been triumphant even over death. These same nail-scarred hands that they saw in that room, that same right hand would be put on John's shoulder in Revelation 1, when Jesus says to him, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. He was crucified, he died, he he was buried, but he lives. It's testimony to his victory. And what is the result for the disciples? It's interesting, sometimes they're afraid when they see Jesus revealed as who he is. But what is their reaction now when they see Jesus revealed for who he is? Then the disciples were glad When they saw the Lord. This is a cause for rejoicing. This is the joy that Jesus had promised them. Just as he had promised peace, he also had promised joy. He promised that too earlier in John's gospel. In John 16, 22, he had said, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. There is a gladness in the presence of Christ that can't be taken away. There's a gladness in the presence of Christ, a joy that cannot be lost. The joy of knowing Him and knowing Him as the God who speaks a word of peace to us. It's a permanent joy because He is a permanent God. 
He is a permanent presence with us who will never leave us or forsake us. This is his peace. And it's in the context of this peace coming to his disciples, creating this joy that he gives them their commission. That he tells them to go into the world and be his ministers. Maybe you thought I'd forgotten all about the keys of the kingdom. Um, No, we're coming back to it now. The provision that Jesus makes for the church when he commissions his disciples to go out in his name. Notice how he says in verse 21, Peace be with you again, he says. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. What does Jesus do for his disciples? Um, He commissions them. He tells them, you are going to be sent into the world. He speaks that word of peace to them again and then says, you're going to go out in the world and be my disciples. I'm going to send you to do my work. Right, Just as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. And that should be an encouragement to them because the Father had given Jesus a word and a work, a word of the kingdom and a work of salvation to do. And that's what Jesus does for his disciples. He gives them a word and a work. And what is their job in the world? It's to go out and speak that word of peace in Christ's name. And to tell people how to find peace. That's what we read about the preaching of the Holy Gospel as the key that opens the kingdom to people. It shows us how to find peace. Peace in the Lord who died for us and the Lord who was raised for our justification. Uh, Peace in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That gospel good news, they're going to go into the world with that commission. The work to bring that good news into the world. And Jesus said, just as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. And that's important for them because when Jesus came, the power and the authority of the Father stood behind him in everything that he did. And so these disciples going forward can know that the the authority of the Father, the Father is going to empower them to do what they've been called to do. And that's why we see them, that they're not only going to be sent, but they're, they're equipped to do what Christ is calling them to do. They're being equipped to open the kingdom to those who hear their word, to preach the good news of peace with Christ through his death. They're being equipped by the Holy Spirit. Jesus equips them to be his witnesses. He breathes his Holy Spirit on them. Um, I like John Calvin said that this breathing out of the Holy Spirit is the sprinkling of grace upon them that will be poured out in full measure at Pentecost. I like that. This is just the sprinkling of what will be poured out at Pentecost. But what do both signal? The equipping of the church and the world to do that work that Christ has called them to do. It's a reminder that these disciples would not be able to do what they're going to be called to do without the equipping power of the Holy Spirit. And really that's true of the whole church. Whether you're an apostle or a minister or just have the general office of believer, we cannot do what God has called us to do apart from the help 
and equipping of the Holy Spirit. And how wonderful it is to know that God pours out His Spirit, that He equips those He calls to do what He's called us to do. That's a measure of God's grace and goodness to us, that He calls us to do things and then He equips us to do them. He equips us and He empowers us. That's what the disciples are are having done for them. They're being empowered to go into the world, to speak that word of peace and to say, that word of peace, because it is my word, is authoritative where it comes. And what is the purpose of that word of peace as it goes forth into the world? It's to release the guilt of the wrongdoer. What is God sending people into the world to do? To bring the gospel good news so that people can have their burdens removed. So people can find forgiveness of sins. So people can find rest for their souls. So people can find peace. Isn't it wonderful that our God is a God who sends forth this word into the world so that sins would be forgiven, so that sinners would be relieved of their burden, so that sinners would come to God and to live. And as that word goes into the world, it testifies to the world that there is no other name given among, under, under heaven, given among men, by which you must be saved. There's only one person who has the power to forgive your sins. There's only one person who has the power to reconcile you to God, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace has to be found in Him. Forgiveness for sins can only be found in His name. And to proclaim Jesus Christ and the good news of the gospel is also to say to the world, this is the only way to be saved. There is no one else who can give you peace. There is no other way to find forgiveness of sins. There is no other way to be reconciled to God. That's why we say by its very definition to preach the gospel is to say to all who believe you'll have your sins forgiven. But if anyone does not believe, you have to know that your sins are still retained. That's what it is to to withhold forgiveness. To say in the name of Jesus, there's only one way to find rest for your soul. That's through Christ, through faith in Him. And if there's anyone else who seeks salvation in some other way, you have to know that you can't find it. And if you seek to try to get out from under that burden another way, you'll find that your sins will be retained against you. You won't find the peace and the rest that only Christ promises. That's why I always remember reading something when I was in seminary that has stuck with me where it said, you know, every time you proclaim the word of God, you're either going to be pressing someone up to heaven or you're going to be pressing them down to hell. Because they'll either are believing and and going into, into grace or they are going further away from Christ. And the guy said, who would do that who did not have their heart bathed in the blood of Calvary? who did not see this Lord Jesus, who alone by his wounds in his hands and feet and side 
can give you rest for, for your soul by his one sacrifice on the cross. This is what they're commissioned to do in the world. That's why we say preaching has that function, to open the kingdom of heaven to those who believe. But that it will also shut it against those who will not receive Christ, who will not believe in the word that's preached. And there is a real power in those commissioned to preach. There is a real authority that they come with. They are not the king, but they speak for the king. The king is empowering them here to go forth in his name. Whatever they say in his name, he will confirm. Right? That's the promise that he's giving to them. That's why this is a good passage to go to for preaching as a key of the kingdom because it's clearly not given to any one disciple. It's given to them all. This is the message that they're given. They don't make the terms of forgiveness for sin, but they have the privilege of ministering them. And that's what we desire as a church, is for people to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to believe in his name and to live. That's how the kingdom of heaven is opened. For us all to recognize that we are sinners. And that apart from the salvation that's provided by the cross of Jesus Christ, we cannot be saved. There is nothing that we can do for ourselves to make ourselves acceptable to God. And the good news is that we don't have to. Because Jesus has done everything that's necessary to make us acceptable to God. He's lived the perfect life we couldn't live. And he's paid the price for our sin that we couldn't pay. Um, and he's been raised to a life that we could not hope to have apart from him. And he says, all of this can be yours. All you have to do is believe in me. Put your faith and trust in me. Stop trusting in yourself. Stop trying to find peace by locking yourself in a room and thinking you can secure yourself that way. But come to me, Jesus says, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you come to Jesus, you'll find rest for your soul. That's what the church is to do in the world, to proclaim that good news of the gospel. Uh, that those who come to the Lord Jesus Christ will live and that there's salvation in no other name. And just in closing, notice the order of how Jesus sends his servants into the world. He wants forgiveness to be found. There is also always the reality that when you preach the good news, there are people who will not listen and it will have the effect of shutting the kingdom against them. Um, but notice that what the Lord puts first and, in first and primary position is the forgiveness of sins. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. We have a God who wants us to come and to live. And he's given us a church to continue to minister this apostolic faith. And that authority and equipping that he's given should give us safety and certainty 
we can rest assured that this is the will and the word of the King. That the gospel comes to us so that we would find forgiveness of our sins. So that we would find rest for our souls. And it's our privilege to proclaim that good news. That Christ has triumphed over our fears and given peace to all who believe in him through his death and resurrection. This is the apostolic faith that we must believe and proclaim and preserve the truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ until he comes again. May all here know the joy of finding forgiveness of sins in his name. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have sent your Son into the world to save sinners, and that just as you sent him, so he sent his disciples into the world to continue to spread the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that those who turn to him in repentance and faith can find forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with you, and rest for their souls. May we be reminded once again, for those of us who know Jesus, how privilege we are to have that weight, the burden of our sins lifted off of us. And we pray that you would help us to continue to be faithful to preach the gospel of Jesus, that many more might find the kingdom of heaven open to them, that they might hear and believe and live. Hear our prayers and give, receive our thanks, for we present them to you in Jesus' name. Amen.